be seated. Uh, parents, uh, for those of you who may not have received uh, my letter earlier this week on behalf of the session, I want, just want to remind you at this point that the theme of the sermon is going to be God's design for marriage and sexuality. And so you may have children who are older than the children's church age uh, who you're not comfortable hearing this message. I think it will be okay. Uh, so I know what I'm going to say. <laughs> but we want to empower your ministry as parents, and we don't want to jump ahead of where God is leading you uh, with respect to your shepherding of your children. So in light of that, if you have kids who don't fit in the children's church age group, uh, but who you would prefer uh, hear your digest of the sermon uh, rather than hear it live, Stuart Timmerman, one of our elders, is in the back of the room, and he'll be leading a class for those uh, kids, so feel free at this point to, uh, to be dismissed if that's how you're led. Our sermon text this morning is uh, Matthew chapter 14, verses 1 through 12. It's on uh, page 820 of your pew Bibles. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod has seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus, The grass withers, the flower fades. Stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the relevance of the gospel to every area of our lives. We thank you and praise you that the Lordship of Jesus is a gracious and omnipotent Lordship and that there is no life that he is not willing to transform and there is no life that he is not able to transform and we are living proof of that. And so as we uh, stand here reading and thinking and preaching and worshiping together, uh, at the foot of your son's cross. We want to remember again that we're, we're here worshiping at this intersection of your holiness and your love and your triumph in Christ. Keep the eyes of our hearts open to those realities. And we pray this morning for equipping and strengthening. And we pray also for the gift of salvation to be bestowed today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, uh, there are three connections I want to begin uh, by making. Uh, 
connections between our text and three things. It's very important. And by the way, I don't want you to be distracted. I lost a button right before the service. Okay, can we get this? So don't think about that. Okay. See, I knew you'd be thinking about it. So connection number one is between our text and the preceding context. You know, we spent a couple months uh, thinking through the parables of the kingdom in Matthew 13. And uh, that whole chapter is about Jesus explaining various aspects of the kingdom of heaven. All kinds of issues, and we don't need to review them now. But the theme was the kingdom of heaven. What, What does it look like when God, the sovereign creator, comes to the world that he has made and actively exercises and asserts his sovereign rights over his creation. That's what chapter 13 is about. But when we get into chapter 14, we're still on the same theme. But now we're looking at how God's rule and his rights as the sovereign creator are coming into collision with an individual's life, particularly Herod's life. So that's the first connection, the connection of context. The second connection is between our text and our historical moment as a culture. Uh, You you know, just a couple of months ago, uh, the California Proposition 8 uh, challenge and the Federal Defense of Marriage Act challenges were argued uh, in front of the Supreme Court. And uh, those cases will, the decisions in those cases will be rendered uh, by the end of next month. Uh, A lot could change. I don't know which way the Supreme Court is going to rule on those challenges, but but a lot uh, could change very drastically in our culture. And so I'm very grateful to God that in his uh, good providence, we have, just in the regular consecutive exposition of his word in the Gospel of Matthew, we've reached a uh, a text that addresses uh, this uh, very issue, this whole question of the definition of marriage. And if you don't see that issue yet from our text, uh, give me a few minutes. Uh, the third connection is, is a personal connection. Uh, my own struggles uh, with sexual sin did not end at my conversion. And they have not ended. And they will not end until I draw my last breath on this side of glory. And so I want you to know that over, as we spend the next two weeks thinking about these themes, I'm not gonna, I don't intend to be preaching from the balcony of an ivory tower to you. I'm preaching these messages at the foot of a very bloody cross. And it's because of that that I am full of hope. When I look at our cultural landscape, I am not discouraged. And neither should you be. We are people of the gospel, my friends. It is God who has the last word and the final say in history. And the gospel is the power of God. Now think about that. It is the power of God for salvation. To whom? To everyone who believes. To the lesbian. To the gay person. To the bisexual person. To the transgendered person. To the drunkard. To the abuser. To the greedy, money-grubbing person. To the covetous person. 
to the liar, to the proud person, to everyone who believes. I am very, very hopeful because God is king. And there is a yes in God's stance toward the world that nothing the world does can overpower. Right? If we as Christians, if all we ever have to say in response to the question of same-sex marriage is no, if that's as deep as our response ever gets, then we're not really paying attention to how powerful the gospel is. And so what I want to do over these next two weeks is I want to invest the time with you in thinking through, and I don't have any illusions about being able to address all the questions that are raised by this issue, but I want to be thinking through, laying a foundation, some groundwork, putting put in place some good categories that will equip us not only to exegete and understand our culture's heart, what is it? What, what are the values and longings that drive our culture's heart? Understanding our culture better and more deeply through the lens of Scripture, and then also being equipped to move with God's word of hope into uh, our world. And so this morning I want to make a beginning of that, and I want to look at three uh, questions with you that I trust uh, will be, or really three issues that will, uh, I hope, provide an entryway for us. First is we're going to see the real question uh, in our text. We're going to secondly diagnose the real disease, and uh, Lord willing, we will also uh, think together finally about receiving the real welcome of Jesus Christ. So let's uh, look first at this first heading, seeing the real question. And what is the real question? The real question is, who is king? Who is king? And my first task, I realized this morning, is to show you how we get to the issue of uh, the definition of marriage uh, from this text and same-sex marriage. So, but in order to do that, we've got to review uh, some background that you may not uh, recognize. There's a backstory here, and the first thing we need to acknowledge about the backstory is that the New Testament is full of people named Herod who aren't the same person. Here a Herod, there a Herod, everywhere in the New Testament there's a Herod. Okay? So how do, who is this guy? Well, this is Herod Antipas who is the son of Herod the Great. And Herod the Great was uh, king in Jerusalem when Jesus was born. He's the Herod that the Magi visited. He's the Herod who ordered the slaughter of the baby boys in Bethlehem. And Herod Antipas is his son, one of his sons. And and Herod uh, the Great had a lot of wives, so there are a lot of half-brothers, all with the first name Herod. And when Herod the Great died, he divided up his kingdom basically into three parts, and Herod Antipas got one part of that kingdom, the part that covered Galilee and another area called Perea. And that means that Herod Antipas, the Herod in this text, was the ruler in Galilee during Jesus' adult life. Now, Herod had married... Uh, a woman, and then fell in love with Herodias. Now, Herodias was his half-brother's wife. Now, did your eyes roll in the back of your head yet? Herodias was his half-brother's wife. She was also his niece. So what happens here 
is that our Herod married, who was a son of Herod the Great, married a granddaughter of Herod the Great. And so in two respects, that marriage violated God's law and was the basis for John's condemnation of Herod. It violated uh, the restrictions on unlawful divorce, and it violated uh, the restrictions of God's law on marrying your relatives. And so in these two respects, uh, John challenged the validity of this marriage to Herodias. It was these uh, transgressions that were the basis for John's uh, challenge. And, friends, this is ultimately why John was imprisoned and why he was murdered. You see, the question that reveals the real question is this. Why was John murdered? Why did Herod and Herodias both want him dead? They wanted him dead because he was challenging the validity of their marriage. You see, what he was doing was challenging them on the very same two questions that are at the heart of our current cultural debate. Number one, aren't I free to choose whom I love? And number two, aren't I free to choose whom I marry? And John was saying, God has an opinion about both. What John was doing, friends, was he was daring to declare that Herod's bedroom was God's throne room. Herod imprisoned John and ultimately murdered John because John dared to challenge Herod on this point, that Herod's sexual life belonged to God, not to himself. What John was saying to Herod, in effect, was your sexual organs are not your sexual organs. They are God's. He is their creator. Therefore, he is their owner. And therefore, you are his steward. And your sexuality is meant to tell the truth about God. What John was declaring, friends, was that in the realm of sexuality and marriage, human consent by itself is not sufficient. Can you just see how this just comes right at the heart of key assumptions in our culture? You see, the only boundaries... And we'll talk more about this next week. But the only boundaries for human sexuality now in our culture are consent. That's the only boundary. Human consent. But what John is saying is, no, there's a divine consent that is a necessary condition. And this is ultimately why he was murdered, because John dared to declare that there was a king higher than Herod. There was a king higher than Herod who, who had not just an opinion, but a will for how Herod's sexuality would be stewarded and what the meaning of marriage would be. 
And that is ultimately why John was martyred. You see, this is the real question. Who is king? Who is the king of our lives? Is man autonomous, meaning a, a, a law unto himself? Are we self-lawed? Or is man ruled by God's law? See, this question that we're facing in our culture is not a judicial question. It's not even a sexual question. It's not a political question. It is at its fundamental roots a deeply theological question. And we need to see that about this issue. Otherwise, we are not going to be able to engage our culture constructively. You see, this is Herod's question. Who's the real king? And Herod's answer is, I'm the real king, right? And, and this is the question beneath every other question in the marriage debate. Who is the king? And this is the question at the center of each of our own lives, not just in this area, regardless of where you come out on the whole issue of uh, the definition of marriage, right? This is the question at the center of each of our lives. Who is the king over our lives? And that leads to our second point, which is that, 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 that is really at the heart of the whole same-sex marriage debates, and that is, what is the real disease? You see, if you don't diagnose the real disease correctly, you're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to just chase symptoms. And you have to be able to distinguish, particularly when we're dealing with this issue in our culture. We have to be wise with the wisdom of God to distinguish between symptoms and disease. If you don't appreciate the difference between those two things, then you will always be chasing symptoms. And if all you're doing is chasing symptoms, you will never be able to really offer any healing. So the symptom is the passion to redefine marriage. That's a symptom. That's not the disease. That's a symptom. The disease is the passion to redefine our humanity. You see, the attempt or the desire to redefine marriage is an attempt to redefine human sexuality. But the attempt or the desire to redefine human sexuality is fundamentally a passion to redefine what it means to be human. This is the real disease. This is the real problem. And this, by the way, is the real problem, not just in their lives, but in our lives. Amen? So this ambition to define ourselves by ourselves, for ourselves, to live our lives as though they were our lives rather than God's life, that is the DNA in sin from the very beginning. And the, the passion to legalize same-sex marriage is just the latest wardrobe change that that ambition has put on. I think this is where Scripture leads us. And it leads us to another place, too, which is that when we see the issue this way, we have to acknowledge that we have exactly the same symptoms and we have exactly the same disease. This means that we don't have the luxury of distancing ourselves from the same-sex marriage proponents. 
because I believe that we suffer from exactly the same disease at, at our cores. And you say, well, wait a second. I'm not trying to redefine marriage. I believe that marriage is one man, one woman for life. But friends, do you know that God's definition of marriage is much more than one man and one woman for life? Do you believe that it's possible to have a very wicked marriage that dishonors God but technically meets that definition? Think about uh, some of the ways that we redefine marriage. See, I don't think that the same-sex marriage proponents invented this whole passion to redefine marriage. I think they learned it from us. We are the veterans. You say, what do you mean? Well, friends, we redefine marriage when we try to hijack its purpose. God says that the purpose of marriage is to display, as Clay reminded us, is to display God's relationship with his people through Jesus Christ. But we want to redefine our marriages so that what they're really about at the practical level, in the day-to-day level, is our personal happiness and our personal fulfillment. We redefine marriage all the time with respect to the roles within marriage, right? I mean, when you pay attention to what the Bible says, what God's revealed will is for the roles of husbands and wives in marriage. Friends, we are marked by a passion to redefine those roles. We as husbands resent and avoid God's call to lay our lives down for our wives when they are not being lovely to us. We avoid, as husbands, the call to be the priests in our family and to be the spiritual heads in our families. And wives, as Christian wives, I'm talking about Christians here, as Christian wives, we resent and avoid God's call to respect our husbands. We condition it according to whether or not we think our husband is respectable. Uh, We redefine marriage both with respect to its beginning and its end. We want to believe that we are free to marry anyone we want at the beginning, but you know God, God doesn't say that we are free to marry anyone we want. If you're a Christian, you're not free to marry anyone you want. if If you are a Christian, an unmarried Christian, contemplating marriage, you are not free to marry anyone you want. You have to marry a Christian, for one thing. Uh, We're also passionate about redefining marriage with respect to when it ends. We think that God's conditions for divorce are too restrictive. We redefine marriage, uh, friends, with respect to our sexuality. We wander. We're not careful about the way that we observe and protect and guard the sexual boundaries of the marriage covenant. And we withhold ourselves from our spouses sexually in violation of 1 Corinthians 7. 
We redefine marriage in terms, uh, and I'm talking in the church. This is all a family discussion. We are prone to redefine marriage in terms of, uh, we, so many Christian marriages are not marked by joy, and they're not free from bitterness, and they are not defined by radical forgiveness. There is almost a settledness to them. There's almost a cynicism about whether or not the Christian spouse will ever change. They'll just do the same thing over and over again. And these Christian marriages are not defined by hope. Friends, if that's true of your Christian marriage, you are redefining, and you're okay with that, you're redefining your marriage in a way that is not consistent with God's design. Friends, we have a lot to repent of. And even deeper than that, there's the whole question of our sin, right? Generally, right? We not only redefine marriage, but we ourselves also have the same passion to redefine our humanity. And so turn with me to Romans 1. You know, there's a tendency. It is often unspoken, but it, it, I think it is deeply embedded as an assumption in a lot of our thinking that sexual sin is worse than other sins, and that in particular, homosexual sin is worse than all other sexual sins, which means that homosexual sin is worse than every other sin, and that's an unbiblical assumption. Look at Romans 1. Starting in verse 18. What Paul describes all the way to the end of Romans 1, I'm not going to read the whole thing, I'm just going to hit a couple of uh, points, three points. But what I want you to see is, and, and I want you to read it very carefully this afternoon, but what Paul describes is uh, the best analogy I can come up with. Well, there's really two. One is that Paul is describing this, this toxic spring that flows out of the human heart. And there is a river that flows out of that spring. And all the sin, all the different sins are downstream from that toxic spring. All the heterosexual sins, all the homosexual sins, all the other sins, the things that we don't think are very serious, but God believes that they are. Things like gossip and envy and covetousness and unkind speaking and stealing. And they all come out of the same poison spring. Look at uh, verses 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now look at verse 19. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they, that's 100% of humanity, they are without excuse. Now here's here's the poison spring. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You see, this is the poison spring out of which every other sin, sexual or otherwise, heterosexual or homosexual sin, flows. It is this refusal to be a human being. 
It is this passion, this resolve that we as a creature can redefine ourselves in a way that's not consistent with God's definition of it, of us. And so all sin has the same source, friends. We need to see that about ourselves. And not only that, but secondly, homosexual sin is not worse than heterosexual sin. Look at verse 24. What comes out of that toxic spring first is heterosexual sin. Verse 24, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. He's talking about heterosexual sin first. And in language that echoes what he then says about homosexual sin in verse 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. And thirdly, what we see from Romans 1 is that sexual sin is not worse than non-sexual sin. Look at verses 28 through 32. You say, well, wait a second, I haven't committed adultery. I'm not, my struggle is not, uh, is not homosexual sin. But see if you can make it through verses 28 through 32, my friends which is the same river coming out of the same poison spring. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, see, that's verse 21. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, and they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You see, friends, at the end of that, no one can say at the end of Romans 1, the sin of those people over there is worse than our sin. Why am I emphasizing this? Why am I emphasizing our connection with the proponents of same-sex marriage? Well, for two reasons. I, I know you guys well enough to know. I fully expect that you're agreeing with what I'm saying. I know you well enough to know that. But I wanted to spend the time to do this from Romans 1 this morning to think about the redefinition of marriage for two reasons. Number one, I think that these, our connections with the proponents of same-sex marriage have been overlooked. I pay very close attention to the debates uh, and the theological responses to same-sex marriage in Christian and particularly Reformed circles. And I just don't see this being emphasized enough. And I think it's utterly critical when we think about engaging missionally our culture as it's shifting so dramatically on this issue. If we don't see our connection with the same fundamental issues that are driving the same-sex marriage campaign, we will never have a ministry toward those proponents that is marked by humility. And it better be marked by humility. Why would anyone ever pay attention to our call to deep repentance 
if they don't see us deeply repenting? Why would anyone respond to a call to repent of a way that they think about themselves at their core if they don't see us, the people of the gospel, modeling exactly the same kind of deep repentance? Is it not Jesus who said to us, take up your cross daily and follow me? That means you give your whole self to him. Is it not the Holy Spirit who directed Paul to write to the Romans, right? Therefore, by the, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice to God. Is it not Jesus who said to his disciples and says to us, you've got to lose your life for my sake, right? It's exactly the same. Our lives should be reflecting this. That's the first reason I emphasize this. The second reason I emphasize it is not because of our, uh, our connection with them, which should, which should shape a ministry of both humility and compassion, but secondly, because of Jesus' connection with the proponents of same-sex marriage. Oh, this is so critical to see this. See, if we, we need to identify with them because at root, our issue is the same. Who is the king? But the wonder of the gospel is the good news that God himself identified with them in Jesus Christ. You say, what possible connections could Jesus Christ have with the proponents of same Sex, marriage, with, with people who are ensnared in a homosexual lifestyle. What possible connection could he have? Every connection that matters, that's what. He has human flesh. He has been tempted in every way. He was tempted to misuse his body in a way that was contrary to God's design. He was a man with sexual hormones. He was a real man. He bore in his body all the consequences of our sins, consequences that we ourselves cannot fully understand, right? But you see, what Jesus did at the cross, what happened at the cross, friends, is that Jesus literally moved to the end of our lines. And in his body, because he bore the eternal judgment of God against all the sins of his people, Jesus is personally familiar in a way that no other sinner is with the consequences of sin. And so, friends, we are people of the gospel, which means that we need to take what Scripture says very seriously about Jesus' connection experientially uh, in terms of his nature and in terms of his experience uh, with the experience of sinners. And on top of that, on top of all of that, there is Jesus' love for the sinner, in which he voluntarily binds himself 
to the welfare of this world. It is breathtaking. The gospel of that Jesus is enough for anyone. It is enough for anyone. Everyone and anyone who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ receives God's complete forgiveness of all sins, past, present, and future, and has accorded and reckoned unto them all by the grace of God and received by faith alone the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. So please don't ever think that Jesus is not deeply connected to the proponents of same-sex marriage. Our ministry is a ministry of hope on those facts, not our techniques. You know, it's very easy when you look at this issue. I know I have felt this way. It is very easy when you think about this issue. It's just like, oh my goodness, what in the world are we supposed to do in response to this? How do you begin a conversation with somebody? This is so sensitive. I, I... it is, and it is so complicated and it's very easy to begin to think that you need something besides the gospel. Some great argument, some uh, new technique for ministry. Friends, what we need is to believe the same gospel that saved us. Who in this room, when they're honest about their story, can say that they needed less of the blood of Jesus to be brought into the kingdom of heaven than a converted homosexual person. Not me. We need the same gospel that they need, and we've received the same gospel, and that gospel is the power of God, my friends for salvation to everyone who believes and the willingness of Jesus Christ to take somebody that the world thinks is filthy and to wash them and to sanctify them, to set them apart as holy and then to fill them with his spirit, making them his temple, justifying them. Oh, friends, that we, we, when we think about our own experience of those wonders That should change the way we look at the world. Not in a way that condones sin and rebellion against God, but that believes and moves toward those folks with the same hope that we ourselves are savoring and enjoying that we've received from such a gracious king. And that brings us to our third point, which is receiving the real welcome of Jesus Christ. Because the good news of the gospel is the promise of a real welcome by the living God through Jesus Christ. And that welcome, when I say, when I say real welcome, I mean it is a welcome on his terms. 
And I want to think with you about three of his terms. First, it's universal. Secondly, it's conditional. And third, it is relational. So, the real welcome of Jesus Christ is universal. And what do I mean by that? I mean this, that we are defined, and when I say we, I mean my Christian brothers and sisters who are here. Friends, you know what defines us? You know what explains every gift that we have and enjoy? It's that we have been welcomed by the living God. Not when we were good, not when our record was sparkling, not when we were clean, not when we loved him. We were welcomed by the living God at such a great cost. Everything we have, we have because of the welcome of God. He promised us that he wouldn't break a bruised reed. He promised us that he wouldn't extinguish a smoldering wick, and he hasn't. And it's been our experience, right? Hasn't that been your experience, my brother and sister? That he, he took your bruised reed, and he didn't break you. He took your smoldering wick, and he didn't, he didn't extinguish you. And when Jesus has said to us, hey, come, come to me, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We've experienced the truth of that promise. And when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. We've experienced that. Those are invitations to come. Those are welcomes that we've received. And his welcome that we've received makes us welcomers of others. That's how it's supposed to work. We welcome as we have first been welcomed. And so what I want to say to you who, who are here, you, you may be, uh, maybe you are struggling with homosexual sin. Maybe you are ensnared in pornography. Maybe you are ensnared in an adulterous relationship or you're ensnared in uh, in premarital sex, fornication. You're engaged in some kind of sin that you are so deeply afraid of coming to light. I just want to say this to you. You are welcome here. The doors of this church are always going to be open to you, and the doors of our hearts are always going to be open to you. And here's why. Because Jesus Christ has opened them. The living God has opened them. The king of the universe has opened them. His stance toward the world is a stance of mercy. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. We live now on this side of the cross in the age of mercy. We live between the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. Yes, there will be a final total reckoning for the entire earth. There is a day of judgment, but we live now in this amazing arc of mercy, and there is an opportunity for the welcome of Jesus Christ not only to be extended, but to be received and embraced and followed and heeded, and I plead with you to do that. Because the welcome of Jesus Christ is not only universal, it's also conditional. 
What do I mean by that? I mean that it is based upon the whole truth about who you are and who Jesus Christ is. And that means that the welcome of Jesus Christ is a call to repentance. You see, repentance, that word we hate. But it's what John was calling Herod to do, my friends. Repentance is a call of God that has no limits and no boundaries. There is no part of our lives that we can negotiate with Jesus Christ to exclude from the call to submit to his kingship. Jesus' call to repentance is a royal summons of a sovereign king who has absolute rights over every area of our lives, sexual and otherwise. And so we don't get to negotiate with the sovereign of the universe. And you say, well, that's kind of hard. It is hard. But you have to view it in the right way, which is that the call to repentance is meant to be an echo. You see, Jesus says, come to me and bring everything of who you are. Don't hold anything back from me. And the one who issues that summons, friends, in fact, the only way that you can ever begin to respond to that summons is because you begin to realize that the king who issues that royal summons is a king who brought first everything of his own for you. You see, our repentance, the reason Jesus can demand everything of us is because he has already given everything of his for us. You see, the king of the universe gave everything for us. He held nothing back of what was his. His deity, did he hold that back? No. His humanity, did he withhold any portion of that from us? No. His experience of suffering, temptation, obedience to the law, did he hold any of that back from us? Uh, No. Did he hold back his own death from us? No. He gave himself unto the end for us. So how could we ever imagine holding anything back, any part of our life, from the king who held nothing of his own life back from us. You see, that is the biblical foundation of repentance. It is absolutely conditional upon everything that we know of being brought to him. And that includes your sexuality, my sexuality, our sexuality. Repentance is a call without boundaries. It's also a call to receive Jesus' rescue. Now, like many of you, that I, I, I've just been, I've, I've shuddered with every new disclosure about that story in Cleveland. I, that, I, that story is just so horrific. And as I thought uh, this week about the woman you know, banging on the door and that neighbor who came by and broke her out of that house, you know, liberated her from her captivity. I started to think about John and Herod and how badly Herod misunderstood John because you know what John was trying to do when he's confronting Herod, when he's saying, hey, your marriage is not lawful. What he's trying to do with Herod is he's trying to break him out of his captivity. 
And Herod says, no, I want to stay in my captivity. So I'm going to kill you. Friends, if we saw our sin with God's eyes, we would see it for what it actually is. It is captivity and it is slavery. It is not life. And if we saw our sin with God's eyes, we would see our reluctance and even our refusal to repent for what it is. It is a desire to retreat even further into the captivity that has enslaved us. And that is the kind of insanity that sin produces, friends. And it is the kind of insanity that the royal, glorious Jesus Christ comes in to rescue us from, to break into this world in all of his grace, to break into the stronghold of our sin and bondage to sin, to defeat to defeat the slave master and to set us free. Why would he possibly want to do that? Why would he spend himself to set us free? Why would he put himself in the place of such danger and jeopardy and suffering to save us, to get us free? And the answer is this, because he wants to marry us. He wants us as his bride. There is a love There is a love that propels Jesus' call to repentance to the sinner. It is a love that longs to rescue. It is a love that declares his purpose to rescue and then to bring to himself the sinner. Not just in an arm's length relationship, but in to the terms and conditions of the most intimate of relationships that can possibly be understood by a human being, and of which the best marriage among men and women is but the faintest little shadow. It's like a little drop in an ocean of wonder, and that is the relationship between God and his redeemed people. And Jesus, this is the wonder of the gospel that Jesus, the bridegroom, has come into the world to set us free from our captivity and paid the highest of bride prices, his own blood on the cross to purchase us for himself. And what's the dowry that we gave him? Our sin. And he said, I'll take it. I'll welcome your dowry of sin all the way into myself and I'll betroth you to me forever. And when I betroth you to me forever, all that is yours I will take into myself and all that is mine I will bestow upon you. And I will do that for any and every sinner regardless of background or history who comes to me. Now that is marriage equality. The ultimate marriage equality. The only marriage equality that really satisfies the deepest longings of our hearts. That is the message of hope we need to bring to the world. Let's pray. Lord, your yes to us, your I do to us needs to shock us again. Help us to feel the wonder of your love yet again. And as you pour this wonder into us, 
make us people who pour it out into the world and into the relationships that you've entrusted to us. We pray in your name. Amen.